So today, this is Defenders of the Faith Part 1. Um, I don't know if you'll get a Part 2, because that's Alan, and I'm not sure <laughs> what the, the roster is off the top of my head. But anyway, uh, when he's out here next, Defending the Faith, it sounds like a Marvel movie, doesn't it? Defenders of the Faith. But anyway, I'm going to pray. Father, I pray for your words and not mine. We pray for your power to be in this place, to anoint your word to make the truth settle in our hearts and change us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are all defenders of the faith. And apologetics, you might think, apologetics series, what does that mean? What is apologetics? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not going around apologizing for being a Christian. I'm so sorry, I'm a believer. I'm so sorry, I have to tell you this, I'm a Christian. It's not that. You don't have to apologize for being a Christian. Apologetics, the Greek word in apologia, I think is how you say it, means to give a defense. So apologetics is giving a defense of the gospel. It's like reasons to believe the good news of the, of the gospel, the Bible, Christianity. Now, apologetics is not a new thing. Christianity is steeped in an apologetic tradition. Who's heard of C.S. Lewis? You know, the author of the Narnia series, but he also wrote lots of... Um, apologetics books. He was a great apologist and he wrote many books defending the faith like The Abolition of Man, Mere Christianity, to name a couple. So was Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy and The Hobbit. He was a great Christian and an apologeticist, if that's the correct term. And um, Alpha Course, who's ever done Alpha? That's a form of apologetics right there. Talking through the basis of what we believe and removing obstacles to people believing. It's a defense of Christianity. So you and I are defenders of the faith. So tell the person next to you, you are a defender of the faith. That's right. Now tell the person on the other side, I am a defender of the faith. That's who you are. (laughs) So it is answering questions and doubts that unbelievers may have because their questions are important. Who had questions before they became a Christian? You might still have some now. That's okay. I remember going, me too. I remember going to my granddad who was a Christian when I was a teenager and I wasn't. And I trusted him and I was lost. So I would bring my many God questions to him and we would have a discussion out in his workshop as he was working on all his stuff in his workshop. And he would listen and he would answer and he would help steer me in the right direction. And it helped me heaps. We need to help people get over their obstacles and come to know Jesus. We don't have all the answers. We can say, well, I'm not sure, but um, I could ask someone to get back to you. And um, at Alpha this week, someone said, basically they said, not in so many words, but why do bad things happen to good people? Which is a $6 million question. There's no answer for that question. But that's a question everyone wants to know. And I said, well, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know if anyone does, but I can say that since Adam and Eve stuffed it up for all of us, (laughs) ate the apple or whatever it was, uh, sin came into the world at that point. And from that point, there has been sin. There's been evil. There's been pain. There's been suffering. There's been abuse. But that's not God's will. But the whole planet has fallen since that point. But when we get to heaven, it won't be like that. When we get to heaven, it will be the kingdom fully And it'll be the domain of God and there won't be any crying or night or pain and all of that stuff like it says in Revelation. So are you ready? Stay with me today because we're going somewhere. 1 Peter 3, 15b is the number one apologetic scripture. 
It says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So we've got to be ready. We've got to be equipped to give an answer. Apologetics helps spiritually blind people to see. It's important that you and I are willing to be defenders of the faith every day because people are heading towards a lost eternity without Jesus. So we need to be sharing the gospel and talking about it. We don't need to be a secret squirrel Christian, a closet Christian. The Lord has no use for those. (laughs) So we've got to be out there with our Christianity. But we do need to do it with gentleness and respect because we're trying to win a person to the Lord. We're not trying to win an argument. You can win an argument and lose a soul, and that's not what we're about. Because our next scripture, Proverbs 11 verse 30, says, he who wins souls is wise. She who wins souls is wise. So we're trying to win souls, not arguments. So we don't go out and pick a fight with an unbeliever and try and display our vast superior knowledge of apologetics in the Bible. No, that's not what we're about at all, because that's counterproductive. We must always communicate the gospel with humility and love, because we are Jesus' representatives, and he is humble, and he is loving. And we are his ambassadors. We've got to be like him. Now, it is good to know that there is much evidence for Christianity for the Bible and the resurrection. You and I don't just have a blind faith. We serve a God who makes sense of it all. So today I'm going to attempt to scratch the surface, but apologetics, you could go forever on a series on this. So this is maybe apologetics light today. It's diet apologetics, just a little bit. <laughs> We're going to look at four areas. When I, I just lost all the women when I said diet. <laughs> There's mostly women here today, so I've lost most of you. <laughs> okay, we're going to look at four areas. The Bible and, um, is number one, and then the prophecies in the Bible, the resurrection of Jesus and creation. So let's look at the first one. Number one, write this down, the Bible. That's point number one. People need to know that the Bible is accurate and reliable because if the Bible can be discredited, then Christianity can be also. God wrote a book to show us what he is like. Bible in Latin is Biblia, which just means book. Biblia means book. Now, the Bible is actually, as you know, a book that's made up of many books, 66 books, written over 1,600 years on three different continents, Europe, Africa, Asia, by 40 different authors. But of course, the author is the Lord, but he spoke to 40 different people, men who wrote it because women were largely illiterate then. In fact, most of the men were as well, but a few of them weren't. (laughs) The Bible is the most widely read book in the whole world. The Bible is also the most stolen book in the whole world, and it is also the most smuggled book in the whole world. The Bible is and always has been the the most best-selling book in the world, and it has been like that for decades and decades, so much so that they don't ever put it on the top 10 best-selling list because it's always worldwide outselling every other book. It is the book of books. The Bible has been read by more people and published in more languages than any other book. And there is no book on earth that reaches or even begins to compare with the circulation of the Scriptures. So if you've got your Bible with you today, why don't you just kiss your Bible? Say, I love you, Bible. What a blessing it is to have the Bible. It's illegal in many countries. The Bible has influenced the world more than any other book. It is totally unique, 
as it actually has one author, God, who inspired the 40 guys who wrote it down. So here's a scripture about the Bible. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Other versions say all scripture is inspired by God. And we know that God is true and he cannot lie. The Bible says that. And so we know the author of the Bible is true. He is truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So we know the Bible is true. Chuck Missler, who was a great Bible teacher, is with the Lord now, who lived in New Zealand for several years. He's American. He said there are 66 books by 40 different authors, yet we now discover it is an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Because <laughs> I've listened to him say that so many times on Radio Rima. Um, God has pre- preserved his word, the Bible, perfectly over the centuries. If you were to read the Bible in the original Greek and Hebrew, you would, and then read it in your modern English translation, you would find the meaning to be the same. I used to work with a guy at Bethlehem College who used to read the New Testament in the original Greek, and he verified it. He would read it with his other NIV or whatever. It's just the same. The Bible is also unique in its survival. You know, the monks used to copy manuscripts of the Bible by hand. A manuscript just means copied by hand in monasteries. Mostly they would write it on papyrus, which had been made into a type of paper. It's from the papyrus reed, and they would beat it and dry it out. But this does perish over time. Some papyrus manuscripts have lasted from uh, 2500 BC. However, they were stored in very dry areas, like, for example, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we got to see when we were in Israel. Um, but it's amazing how they, are, they will stay for longer because they are stored in a very dry area, and I think it's actually below sea level. Here's a quote by Josh McDowell, who is an author and an evangelist. And he wrote that great early apologetic word called, Evidence Demands a Verdict which if you haven't read it, it's it's an incredible, very thorough work. He said, the Bible, compared with other ancient writings, has more manuscript evidence than any 10 pieces of classical literature combined. Here's another quote from another guy, Bernard Ram, who is an American apologist and theologian. He said, the Jews preserved the biblical manuscripts as no other manuscripts have ever been preserved. They had special classes of men within their culture whose sole duty was to preserve and transmit these documents with practically perfect fidelity. They were called scribes and lawyers. They would even count the letters and the syllables and the words. Whoever bothered to count the letters, syllables and words of Plato or Aristotle or Cicero answered nobody. So God has ensured the preservation of his word. Amen. So we had both Jewish scribes and also Christian monks writing these manuscripts out painstakingly for years and preserving them, many, many manuscripts, far more than other ancient texts, until the printing press was invented. They probably all said hallelujah at that point because they probably had RSI. (laughs) It was invented by Gutenberg in Germany in 1440 and then by the 1450s, they were printing lots of Bibles. So that was a relief for all of them, just in time for the Reformation, led by Martin Luther. Did you know that the New Testament is one of the most reliable documents we have from antiquity, from ancient times? That is because many of the authors were also eyewitnesses. Matthew, John, Peter, guys like that. Or they were interviewing people who had been eyewitnesses, like Luke did, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts. 
And this is because the authors cared about the truth. And we get guys like Luke, who was also a doctor. He was like the original detail guy. He was the original fact checker. So the closer the document was written to the time when the events unfolded makes the document more reliable and accurate because people are writing about what they've just seen rather than writing about what they're remembering decades later. This is like the news. We watch the news every night because it's just happened and people have seen it and it's been reported on. It was a bit like that when they were writing the Gospels. Did you know there are over 5,000 manuscript copies in Greek of the New Testament? This is compared to Plato, a philosopher about the same time, seven copies, and they were made 900 years after he lived. So the Bible is highly accurate, and the Bible has also survived through persecution. It has withstood violent attacks from its enemies as no other book has. Many have tried to burn it, ban it, and outlaw it from the days of the Roman emperors until present day. Communist-dominated and other extremist countries do this still today. You know, the Bible is such a reliable historical text. There are other secular historians who also write about Jesus, like Josephus and a couple of others. And these historians' records backs up what the gospel writers wrote and doesn't contradict them at all. Here's a wee story. You may have heard this story about the 18th century French atheist, And his name was Voltaire. And he was very vocal about his hatred for Christianity. And he predicted that Christianity would be extinct within a hundred years of his life. And this is what he said. A hundred years from my day, there will not be a Bible in the earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker, which means in a museum. But do you know what actually happened? In an ironic twist, within only 50 years of his death, his very house in which he had lived and which he owned then became the Bible Society headquarters. Printing Bibles on Voltaire's very own printing press and distributing them all over Europe and Britain. Don't you love God's sense of humor? God has been faithful to preserve his word. So that was number one. Number two, we're moving along here. The prophecies in the Bible. Do you know the Bible actually proves itself to be true by the many prophecies in it that have been fulfilled? There were many prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the New Testament in the life of Jesus. And there are some still to be fulfilled in our world. Many New Testament writers refer to Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus' life. In the book of Acts alone, the author, Dr. Luke, did this four times. Here's one of them in Acts 13, verse 29. Luke records, he said, when they had done all that the prophecies said about him, Jesus, they took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb. So they were often referring to the Old Testament prophecies that were being fulfilled through Jesus and through other things. Did you know in the Old Testament, there are 322 prophecies of Jesus' birth and his life and his death. They were given hundreds of years before Jesus was born on the earth through many different prophets, and every one of them was fulfilled. That is freaky. Details like where he would be born, how he would die. For example, here's one. In Micah 5 verse 2, it prophesies that the ruler, the Messiah, would come from Bethlehem. Now, Joseph um, Joseph and Mary didn't even live in Bethlehem. They were miles from Bethlehem. They were many days' journey 
on a donkey and walking from Bethlehem. They lived in Nazareth. Now, this prophecy was written over 400 years before Jesus was born. You can't fulfill these things yourself. How could anyone choose where they will be born? Another prophecy was the amount of money that will be the price of his betrayal. Zechariah 11 verse 13 prophesies 30 pieces of silver that he would be betrayed for. We see this fulfilled in Matthew 26, 15, when Judas paid the priest that exact amount of silver to betray Jesus. And that was actually, interestingly enough, also the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. Now, all these 322 prophecies being fulfilled in one person's life, do you know what the mathematical probability of that is, of all 322 prophecies about Jesus being fulfilled in his life? It is one over 84 with a hundred zeros after it. Which, in other words, means it's totally impossible. Yet they were all fulfilled, which proves Jesus' absolute divinity. It's totally supernatural. Number three, are you ready? Are you keeping up? Here we go. Number three, the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection. You know, the resurrection is the central claim of Christianity. And here's a verse about it, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. Paul writes, If Christ had not been raised, has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So he's basically saying if there's no resurrection, this whole thing's a lot of hogwash. <laughs> so the resurrection is vital. Here's another quote from Tim Keller, who's an American pastor, theologian, and apologist. The whole issue is whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. So he's basically saying if there's no resurrection, there is no Christianity. So the resurrection is important. Let's look at the facts then. Here we go. Fact one. After Jesus' death, he was buried in a tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea. These are proven by the Bible and other historians. Fact two. Jesus' tomb was empty. This was evidenced by Peter, John, Mary, the other Mary, and Salome. Fact three, the resurrected Jesus appeared to many and was seen by many different people in different places at different times over a 40-day period. Peter, all the other disciples, the women, and 1 Corinthians 15 says over 500 believers. Fact four, the change in the disciples was remarkable. And they showed incredible boldness. They went very quickly from hiding in fear behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. They thought they would probably be crucified too. Two, preaching the gospel publicly, boldly, at risk of their own lives. Now, usually what would happen after an uprising and the leader being killed would be that the followers would disperse in fear of also being killed themselves. That would be the logical thing. But that didn't happen here. All of Jesus' disciples went from cowardice to fearlessness very quickly because they got baptized in the Holy Ghost. <laughs> and all of the apostles, except John, later on actually gave their lives and died and were martyred for the Lord. Why would you give your life for something that's not true? Why would you? You'd forget about it after a while. If the whole thing was a lie made up, after a while the truth comes out. People change their minds. They never change their minds. They even laid down their lives for it. They kept preaching it. Even Jesus' own brothers, possibly technically half-brothers, because remember the Bible says his brothers, and they named four of them, I think it's in the Gospel of Luke, and his sisters, plural, so we know there are at least two sisters and four brothers are named. So Jesus is one of at least seven children. 
He knew what it was like to have an eighth of the muffin in the cafe. A poor kid. You know, so, so it says in the Bible that when they came, you know, at one point in the Gospels, Jesus' mother and his brothers were outside the house saying, come on, come out of here, come and eat something, you've lost your mind. So they didn't believe in him. Another point, they said, are you going up to the feast? His brother said to him, and uh, he said, no, not yet, you go. So they went, and it said because they didn't yet believe in him. But now we have in our Bibles uh, two epistles written by his half-brothers, James and Jude. We say half-brothers because we know Jesus' real father is the Lord. So we see that Jesus' brothers have had a change of heart and even become believers after his resurrection at some point from the dead because I've written epistles. The number of disciples exploded. Now let's just pause and say for argument's sake, if the disciples were wanting to make up an elaborate lie, a big story about Jesus rising from the dead, then how did they move the stone? huge stone, and there was a seal across it, and there were squads of soldiers guarding it. And if we're making up this lie, why did they not produce the body of Jesus to show he was dead? And why did they use the testimony of women to say that Jesus was risen from the dead and they'd seen him? Because they knew in that time that the status of women was so low, they were like chattels. The testimony of women was worthless. It could not even be used in a court of law. So if you were making up a lie, you wouldn't use the testimony of women. You would produce the body. And um, you would also, you know, have an argument about how you'd move the stone. But the angels moved the stone. And they couldn't find the dead body because he wasn't dead. He was alive. So his resurrection was a supernatural miracle of God. And it proves that Jesus has power over death. The bodily resurrection of Jesus authenticated everything he did and everything he said. Who's heard of J. John? He's awesome. I love listening to his preaching. He is an Anglican canon and an evangelist, and he's hilarious. And um, I was listening to him the other day, and someone asked him in this podcast, why are you a Christian? He answered, I'm a Christian because Christianity is true. And because Christianity works. And because we're all broken and only Jesus can fix us. Those four reasons. He went on to tell a story, which I will tell to you, of three authors who tried to disprove the resurrection. He said in the 18th century in London, there was a man named Gilbert West. And he was so annoyed that so many of his friends were becoming Christians. So he decided to write a book to disprove the resurrection. But halfway through writing his book and doing all this research about the resurrection, he met Jesus and he became a Christian. So he decided to write his book the other way around. And he called it Observations on the History and Evidences of the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. About 100 years later, in the 19th century in America, there lived a famous atheist called Robert Ingersoll, nicknamed the Great Agnostic. He also didn't like it that so many people were becoming Christians. It irked him. So he talked to his friend, the famous General Lou Wallace, and he talked his friend into writing a book to disprove the resurrection in order to slander Christianity. So General Lou's writing his book, writing his book, researching all about the resurrection. Then he meets Jesus halfway through writing his book. So he too wrote his book the other way around. He called his book Ben-Hur. You might have seen the movie. 
And another hundred years later, in the 20th century, a lawyer and journalist named Frank Morrison tried to attack Christianity, so he decided to write a book too, also disproving the resurrection. And he's researching it all. And halfway through writing his book, guess what? He met Jesus. So he too wrote his book the other way around. And it's called Who Moved the Stone? So maybe if you want to um, become a Christian and encounter Jesus, you could try writing a book to disprove the resurrection. <laughs> You're guaranteed to have an encounter with the Lord. Last point, number four, the creation. The creation. God has revealed himself in creation, in nature. There is evidence of design in creation. Therefore, creation must have a designer because design doesn't just happen by itself. Romans 1, verse 19 and 20, it says, They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. So we can see the reality of God in the things he has made. And logic will, itself will dictate that if a thing is created, it must have a creator. You know, I've been told that if we look at a blob of concrete under a microscope, it's just a mess of atoms and molecules everywhere. That's because it's man-made. However, if we put a blade of grass or anything from God's creation under a microscope, we will notice three things with those atoms and molecules. There is beauty, there is order, and there is form, beauty, order, and form, because it is God made. And we see patterns in all of creation. When I was out walking on Saturday morning, I just picked this. It's a little bit dry now. And this is a panga, a silver fern. Look at me, I'm an all black. Not really. <laughs> I was just trying hard. The silver fern, it's often a sports emblem, but God made it. It's a panga. And you've all seen them, haven't you? They've got a... Um, black hairy trunk, which I often say my legs go like a punga in winter when I don't shave them for several months. Like a punga for Jesus. Anyway, and then they have these beautiful fronds, these beautiful fronds. Now, it's like the microcosm. I'll, I'll get you to pass it around, actually, of these teeny little leaves. And just pass it around, then pass it back. Um, and each one is really small, but each one is the same. It's bigger. So you can look at it and you see each one's this big, then the next leaf is heaps of those made up, then the next leaf is heaps of those until you get these massive fronds. And next time you see a panga or a silver fern, have a look and pick a frond. And each one is like a microcosm of the macrocosm of the whole plant. It is amazing how God does these things. There is evidence of the fine tuning of the universe. Look at the earth and its position. If we were any closer to the sun, we would burn up. If we were any further away from it, we would freeze to death. If there were not a perfect balance of gases, the placing of the planets, gravity, and other elements in the world, we would not survive here. The Lord has made it so perfectly, like the little panga. And next time you see a massive panga frond, you know that each one, each leaf is made up of lots of those little ones, bigger, 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 bigger. It's incredible. Okay, here's a story that you may have heard before. In 1993, British astronomer Fred Hoyle, in his book named 
The Intelligent Universe, which he wrote refuting evolution and presenting a case for creation. He wrote this little quote. He wrote it to show the ridiculousness of the evolutionary claim that the whole universe came from nothing. He used this famous analogy. He said, a junkyard contained all the bits and pieces of a Boeing 747 plane. All those pieces were dismembered and in disarray. A whirlwind happens to blow through the yard. What is the chance that after the whirlwind blows through, a fully assembled 747 Boeing jet is ready to fly and found standing there? The chance is so small as to be negligible. Exactly. It is an insane notion that something came from nothing. We've got to know that God is incredible. And it irks me greatly that evolution is taught in our schools as fact when it has never been proven. It is a theory which Darwin himself actually renounced on his deathbed. So how do you and I become defenders of the faith? We need to get our bold on. We need to put our big boy pants, our big girl pants on. We need to be talking to people about Jesus. We need to squash any fear of man that, we may, that may rise up within us. And we need to speak out and be defenders of the faith at work, at school, at uni, on the building site, wherever we are. We don't need to feel ashamed about it. We don't need to be shy about it because Christianity is true. Christianity works. And we're all broken and only Jesus can fix us. People all need Jesus and we have him. And as we speak out about him, the fear of man is smashed off us. If the band could join me, please. You know, one day you and I and every person on the planet is going to stand before the Lord. Are you ready for that day? Are you and I each, are we in right standing with God? Only you can answer that for you. And it's only knowing Jesus as our Lord and Savior can put us in right standing with God. It's not a holiness competition. It's not us doing all these right things. It's a heart thing. It's calling on him for salvation. Saying, Jesus, I believe in you. Forgive me for my sins. Have you made Jesus boss of your life? Are you living for him? I'm going to finish with this quote by C.S. Lewis. He was speaking of Jesus. This is what he said. Either this man, Jesus, was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So C.S. Lewis argued that Jesus Christ was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. We've got to make up our minds. Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord of all? C.S. Lewis did not find evidence for either of the first two, so he concluded that Jesus must be the third. He must be Lord. He must be the Son of God, and he became a Christian. Each person must come to their own conclusions about who Jesus is, but we need, each person must, needs to hear about Jesus in order to come and make a decision about him and to come to their own conclusion. 
So they can't hear about Jesus unless someone who knows them talks about him, which is us. The best apologetics we can ever present to others is our own changed life. Thank you, Lord. When we've been born again, we can't keep this good news to ourselves. We've got to share this good news while we can. Are you up for it? Let's stand. Are you ready tomorrow morning at work to be a defender of the faith? Now, what we're going to do is we're going to close out with a worship song, but we would love to pray for people. If you, look, they're here already. (laughs) Uh, People are running to the altar or taking a step out of the front row. (laughs) Uh, I would love to pray for you if you've struggled sharing the gospel with fear of man. I'd love to pray for you if you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit yet because the Holy Spirit is the one who makes us bold. And he makes us not be able to shut up about Jesus. So Will and Nick and I and and other people would love to lay hands on you and pray for you because we need to be defenders of the faith. We don't need to go and be shy or be embarrassed about it. We have a gospel that is strong and true and proven. And we can be overt and bold about it. Because Jesus has changed our lives and he wants to change other people's lives. And there's people only you know, I don't know them, pastors Will and Nick don't know them, they're at your work. They're your neighbours. They're your whanau. And only you can reach them or other people in their world. I can't reach. I don't even know who they are. But we each have a responsibility to reach the people we know or to at least share the gospel about it so they can make their own informed decision. Let's close our eyes, shall we? Thank you, Jesus.